Let me read to you Genesis 17, verse, verses 6 to 8. 6 to 9, sorry. Genesis 17, verses 6 to 9. And here God says to Abraham, And I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. Verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee, in their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee, and to thy seed after thee. Verse 8. And I will give unto thee, and to thy seed after thee, the land wherein thou art a stranger, and all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Verse 9. And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore, thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. Turn with me now to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Let me read to you verses 15 to 18. Here in the New Testament, God refers back to that very same covenant. Genesis 3, 15 to 18. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or added thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seed, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ the law which was 430 years after cannot disannul, that it should make the promise of none effect. God bless the reading of his word. Let's look to God in prayer. Eternal God, our faithful, gracious, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering thy people tonight, and we thank you especially for giving us your promises in scriptures that are so clearly given for us to understand how you deal with us. And Father, tonight as we come to study about covenantalism and dispensationalism, and especially over the next four weeks, we pray, Lord, that you would be our teacher. Help us to understand this topic, that we may understand our faith clearly. And Father, now we pray that you cleanse us and wash us from all our sins, that our coming and gathering together would be pleasing in thy sight. We ask that even now thou would be pleased to come into our midst, be our teacher, and bless this time of fellowship around your word tonight. For we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All of you, by now, should have a copy of the notes. And these notes are just for this week. We will have um, a series of four sessions this week, next week. And then there's a break, after which another two more um, consecutive weeks, as far as I understand. About my previous trip, about maybe six months back, there was a request to cover covenantalism and dispensationalism in one session. And at that time, we had a discussion, and it is not possible to cover this topic in just one session. There are just so many things to understand, and I think let's take time to really understand this thoroughly, so that as we, as, especially as Presbyterians and Bible Presbyterians, we must understand our faith clearly. So that is the reason why we have decided to make it into a series. In fact, please note that this year we'll, we will have three series. This is the first, Covenantalism and Dispensationalism, after which we are 
I'm going to have another series that is uh, on church history, and following that, we have another series on Christian apologetics. So this is the first of the three series, each series, four sessions. So turn with me to your lesson outline on the first page. For tonight, we are specifically going to cover the terms and definitions of covenantalism, and then have a very brief understanding of its history, and have a more in-depth understanding of what covenant theology is, and who are the people that are covenantalists, the famous people. Right? So that is a very rough outline of what we will do tonight. But please take note, you will notice in session 2 onwards, there are quiz, quizzes going on. So we will have a quiz. Okay, so you need to pay attention. You need to pay attention. It's to help you. The quiz is not to frighten you so that you don't come again. It's, I'm not asking you to hand up, alright? So we'll give out, I'll give out the quiz at the next session. What you need to do is, um, you do the quiz, I'll give you 10-15 minutes. You should not take too long. After you've done the quiz, then I'll just say the answer and you mark your own paper. Alright? So, I won't even ask you to exchange papers, alright? So, you mark your own papers. Okay, the whole point is to make sure that you, you catch the key things that um, we want you to learn. Alright, so that's the purpose of the quiz. Along the way, I, I think I will drop hints on the questions. Uh, so, pay attention. Okay, so that's how we're going to do um, this, how, how we're going to carry out these four weeks of um, this session on covenantalism and dispensationalism. In fact, um, I tried to do a poll before this session and I asked a few young people as well as adults. I said, do you understand what is covenantalism and dispensationalism? Actually, uh, when they try and say, most of them cannot pronounce um, the word completely as well. They go cov, cov and dispense and... Yes. So, it is very normal. All right? So, it's a topic that very few have um, had the opportunity and many churches have not really taken time to cover this topic. Turn with me to um, page 2. Page 2. Right at the top. Covenant theology and dispensational theology are the two major theological systems. So if you're a Christian, if you read books, um, inevitably you will come across these two terms. So these are the two major theological systems that you cannot run away from. Many have heard about them, some have some vague idea what they are, and others actually do not have a clue or can't even spell or pronounce it. It is important that believers have an understanding of these systems, and especially for Bible Presbyterians, especially Bible Presbyterians, because the BP faith is a very unique and distinctive faith. Understanding both systems thoroughly will help you understand what BP stands for. BP does not just subscribe and take any system. It is, in my opinion, a system that is very biblical. It takes a biblical view of the systems. Uh, so we need to understand these two systems clearly. And the aim of these four sessions in BPCW is to provide such an understanding regarding the differences of these systems and our faith. So that is the purpose why we are conducting these sessions. Each time I, I'm, I, I came previously, there's always the question about, well, what about this part of um, covenantalism? What about this part of dispensationalism? What about Presbyterians? What about Baptists? Well, by and large, Presbyterians are what? Reform covenantalists. All right? So Presbyterians, by and large, 
if not always, uh, covenant list. All right? uh, what about Baptist? So some y- a young person asks, um, is this going to be about Presbyterians and Baptists? Baptists, by and large, well, I won't say by and large, there are Baptists, uh, there are Reformed Covenantal Baptists, as well as Dispensational Baptists. Okay, so when it comes to Baptists, there are really these two groups. There are Covenantalist Baptists and there are um, Dispensational Baptists. But for Presbyterians, we are always Covenantalist. But what about Bible Presbyterians? All right, so you need to come. You need to come until the last session because I need to make sure that you understand the both systems and that's where I can bring the Bible Presbyterian faith to clarity in your mind. All right, so that is what we are going to cover, especially in the last session. By and large, as Bible Presbyterians, then we must understand the covenantal faith very clearly. Okay, so we'll start with the terms. The terms. The terms. Covenant. Uh, Look at that. The terms covenantalism. The term covenant occurs very frequently in the Bible. As I wrote there, 292 times in 272 verses throughout our KJV Bible. In English, translated as covenant. What is a covenant? What is a covenant? A covenant is um, an agreement between two parties. There are two parties involved. Um, There are agreement, there are conditions involved in the covenant, and there are promises made. So you have to understand that in the first place. And that is how it is used in the Bible. And look at this other term. Covenant theology is also known as federal theology. Federal theology is from the word, Latin word, Fodus, and the word fodus in Latin or federal in English means covenant, treaty, compact. That is what it means. So friends, when we say covenant theology, when we say covenant, we have to think that there is a promise made and there are conditions involved in there. And look at these two words, berith and diatheke. Berith is the Hebrew word used in the Old Testament where we get the English word covenant. Right, berith, and in the New Testament we also have covenant, but it is uh, represented by the Greek word dia theke, dia theke. Okay, um, let's look at berith in the Old Testament. You will see there are um, essentially four well-known covenants in the Bible, major covenants that God made with men, and we see there's the um, covenant with Noah. Then there's the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, um, the Mosaic covenant, and then there's the Davidic covenant. Okay, and but remember, this is the very important point here that you must remember. When I say that means you know that it's coming up for the quiz. Alright? So you must remember all the covenants mentioned as you read the Old Testament and even the New Testament, they're all traced, all traced back to one single covenant that is made in Genesis 3.15. Alright? So, remember, it is, what is John, what is the famous verse for preaching the gospel in the New Testament? John 3.16. Alright? So, we have in the Old Testament, the first gospel that is in Genesis 3, not 16. Alright? Genesis 3. 15. Okay, look, look at Genesis 3.15. We will cover this a bit more, in a bit more detail, but for now, remember Genesis 3.15. After man fell, 
God made this promise. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Here is the first gospel. After man fell, God promised, God told Satan, and God told men, God promised that there will be a seed, a seed we read earlier on in Genesis and as well in um, Galatians. There will be a seed, not seeds, a singular seed, a promise of a single seed, and that seed is Jesus Christ. God promised that Jesus Christ will come and he will have the victory for men and men can be saved through him. So all covenant, this is the very first covenant after man's fall. God promised man. This is what he will do. And subsequently, every single covenant that came about, the Noahic covenant, Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, David covenant, all this, my friends, you must remember, they are always tied to this first covenant that God made with man after the fall. For example, the Noahic covenant, what is it about? It's God's promise that in Christ, man can be saved. Remember Christ, the ark is a type of Christ. All that are in the ark are saved. So that is a promise. So in that, he already, the Noahic covenant is about Christ. In Christ, man can be saved. The Abrahamic covenant, we read, God promised that through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Blessed how? They will receive salvation. That is the promise. Okay? So that is the other covenant. Then Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant is when God promised. Rather, God remembered. Remember we did... In Exodus 19, God remembered His covenant and then He came and delivered His people. What was the purpose of God delivering the children of Israel out of Egypt? It was to make them a people. So that out of these people, the seed, Jesus Christ, will come. All right? So that's, that's the promise God fulfilling step by step. And then Davidic covenant that is Christ, the Savior will reign. And all this is God gradually but surely fulfilling his covenant that he promised in Genesis 3.15. Okay, so just very briefly now, because we will enter into um, a pictorial way to help you understand um, covenant theology. Then in the New Testament, we have the word diatheke. Um, diatheke, as I, write, as I wrote there, is always the word used for making a legal will. The one who makes the will has complete authority over the disposition of his property. He can give it to whomever he pleases. He can establish whatever he wants. God did not use the word without careful thinking. There are two words to mean covenant in the New Testament, in Greek. One is sun teke. Sun teke means it's two parties, equal parties, like friends, you and I, we make a promise to each other. That's sun teke. But God always used dia teke when it comes to his covenant in the New Testament, referring to the Old Testament. Dia teke means one is a higher party. He makes promises. He takes it upon himself. He makes a promise. And you, is what you need to do is accept the condition. That is dia teke. Remember, it's the same in the Old Testament. When man fell, God had to step in. It was a suzerainty covenant. We studied all this during the Sunday sermons. Suzerainty covenant where God, the superior party, like the king, he conquers the people and said, these are the conditions. 
you must accept them. And I will take care of you when you fulfill those conditions. Okay? So it is that kind of covenant. But in the New Testament, this word diateke, um, look at the three last bullets. The diateke is translated as covenant. I give you the verses there. It's translated as testament. That's why you know when we say New Testament, Old Testament, when we say New Testament, the word testament is actually covenant. Okay, so remember that. So this is a new covenant. And then we have also it translated um, with reference to the Lord's Supper. Okay, so these are just some terms for you to, to, to take home and read in detail. But now I want to now start on this um, whole system of covenant theology. I, took, I tried to look for one particular definition which I find best encapsulates covenant theology. Okay, so I will use a diagram which I've given you. I will use a diagram to try and help you understand this definition. So you have a pictorial view in your mind what covenant theology is. But stay on page 2 with me, please. Do not turn yet. Stay on page 2. This is a very good definition of covenant theology. Page 2, definition. The theological system which rests upon the conception that before the fall, man was under covenant of works, wherein God promised through Adam, the federal head of the race, eternal blessedness if he, kept, he perfectly kept the law. And that since the fall of man is under a covenant of grace, wherein God of his free grace promises, and same, promises the same blessings to all who believe in Christ, the federal head of the church. And this is taken from Webster's Dictionary, quoting a theologian called Oliver Buswell. Some of you will know him. His systematic theology is in our library. Okay, so what is this definition about? Okay, now, a pictorial view. Turn to page 5. Turn to page 5. Okay, page 5 will give you a pictorial view. Look at page 5. This is a pictorial view of covenant theology, a systematic view, okay? Covenantalism is simply this. First you see, the first statement is a theological system, right? That before the fall, okay, look at the diagram, it's divided into before the fall and after the fall. Okay, before the fall, man was under a covenant of works. So do you see that, that um, big um, curved um, diagram that shows covenant of works. You see that? Okay. I think I want to move away to make sure I draw that. Draw so that you follow me. Okay. So the definition, before the fall and after the fall. Before the fall, before. Men were under a covenant of what? Work. Okay. Cow. <laughs> Never thought of it that way. Alright. It was tough. Alright. So men were under the covenant of work. So that is the first part of the definition. And then wherein God promised him, which is Adam, the federal head, eternal blessedness if he kept the law. So God promised. So there were the two trees, right? God promised Adam that if he obeyed God perfectly, if he obeyed God perfectly, 
he will have eternal life. Okay, that is the covenant of works. That's why you have to obey. It's works. Salvation was by works then, before the fall. And we, as we all know, Adam fell, and as a result, we all became sinners. If Adam obeyed God and he passed the test, we will all not ever sin. You have to understand that. But Adam fell. That's why we are all sitting in this room and we are having so much pain in our body and we have so much sin in this world, we have so much suffering. All right, so Adam fell. But remember, he mentioned this word through Adam, the federal head. So you, you see, I, I wrote, so this is salvation by works, right? So remember, salvation by works. And Adam is called the federal head. There are, two, there are three things you must always remember. So, um, after the fall, uh, after the fall is covenant of grace. Okay? So in covenant theology, few key things must come to your mind. Number one, the covenant of works, two covenants must come to your mind. Okay, covenant of works, covenant of grace. That is what covenant theology um, starts with. And there is this other concept of federal headship. Okay, so let's continue to look at the definition. It says, And since the fall of man, man is under a covenant of grace, which is this diagram here, wherein God of his free grace, look at that word grace, promises the same blessings to all who believe in Christ, and Christ is now the federal head of the church. So now here we have Christ, we have grace. Salvation is by grace. Before that, salvation was by works. Okay, understand that? After the fall, salvation is by grace, God by His free grace. But we again have that word, federal. Christ, federal, Adam, federal. Okay? So now, um, ignore what is in between for the time being. I'll explain that later. So, you know, whenever I ask people, do you understand covenant theology? What comes to your mind when we say covenant theology? Most people just have a blank mind. Okay, so all you need to know now for a start, when we say covenant theology, there are a few concepts that must, you must understand that must come to your mind. Number one, covenant of works, covenant of grace. There were two covenants with men. Okay, before the fall, after the fall. And there's the other concept called federal headship. Federal headship. Remember the word federal means what? Covenant. Very good. I think everyone should know, right? Um, so, another word for covenant theology is federal theology. Please take note. Okay? Another word for covenant theology is federal theology. So, what is this federal theology? Federal theology is a very important um, place to start understanding covenant theology. Federal headship. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, 12. It's very clear. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Who is this one man? Adam. Because of Adam, sin entered into the world. And then it makes it very clear in verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned, after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. 
What is the meaning of this? It simply says, God, God makes it very clear. We are all Adam's race. Whether you are born um, under any different ethnic race or whatever, we are all descendants of Adam. And God says, because Adam sinned, all descendants of Adam are sinners. Adam is man's head. Man's head. All right? So this headship is always very strong in covenant theology. So Adam is man's head. And because of him, we all fall. But then, look at what about Christ? Look at verse 15 onwards. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, many be dead. Much more the, the grace of God, that the gift by grace, which is by one man. Who is this one man? Jesus Christ hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many Offences unto justification. And here is the verse 17. For if by one man's offence death reigned by one, much more, they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. So covenant theology, federal headship is this. Adam, our head, the sinner's head, all men sin, because Adam sinned. But Christ, the federal head, over there, the federal head of believers, you can be saved. What is the meaning of this? As I, I'll actually explain with an analogy during the marriage and family, count, family session before. Um, I think the people here can't see. It is best explained as an analogy like that. Um, many of you are applying for PR or citizenship. You're applying for citizenship. Do you have a choice when you were born, like for me, I'm a Singaporean. Did I have a choice not to be a Singaporean? I did not. When my, my parents decided to have me, when I was born, I was automatically a Singaporean. All right? So there's this so-called federal headship concept. I am by default. They give birth to me, I'm a Singaporean. I wanted to be American, for example, I can't. I'm born Singaporean. So, same. We are sinners. The analogy, born under Adam, you do not have a choice. You are born a sinner. But as you grow up, you decide, I don't like to be a Singaporean anymore. I want to be an Australian. Alright? And then you can decide. You can choose. You can come to this country and then you can apply to switch citizenship out of being a Singaporean to an Australian citizen. Okay? And so, you decide you come here and then you look at the conditions the government has for this country. You want to be a citizen? These are the condi conditions you must fulfill. Many of you are trying very hard to fulfill those conditions now. So, you understand the condition, then you fulfill those conditions. And then, when you, you it's your choice. When you choose, to be a citizen here. The government says, okay, if you meet this, you can become a citizen, and when you are a citizen, these are the conditions you must also fulfill. And when you fulfill those conditions, the country says what? I will take care of you. I will protect you. 
Our laws will protect you. We will provide medical for you. We'll take care of you. Because you meet those conditions. So friends, we are born under Adam, but God says that while Adam is the federal head of sinners, Christ is the federal head of those that would want to have salvation. You have a choice. You can choose to remain here and always say, I don't want. I want to be under salvation by works. Anyone who rejects Christ is basically saying, I don't want Christ to be my head. He paid for me, but I don't want it. I want to pay myself. And thinking and believing that he can meet God's condition fully. But men can never meet God's condition perfectly. In fact, because of that, Christ had to come and fulfill that condition perfectly. Christ had to make sure that he fulfilled the law perfectly. That's why he said, I did not come to break the law. I did not come to disannul the law. I came to fulfill it perfectly. Fulfill it perfectly for what? Fulfill it perfectly for you and I. So that under him, we can receive his righteousness. So you understand your salvation? Covenant theology explains your salvation very clearly. Many of us say, oh, I'm saved. But when you ask, why are you saved? In fact, recently someone asked, why must Christ come and um, live on earth? Why can't God just save me? Why, can't God, why must Jesus Christ come on earth to be a human being? Do you know why? Because Christ needed to make sure that he can be your federal head. And to be your federal head, Christ had to be a human being. Christ cannot come as a spirit. Christ cannot come as, as God, the spirit. He has to become man just like you and I, but without sin. That's why Christ must not be born of man and man. Anything that is born of man and man is what? Here, sinner. Christ, if he is born between a man and a woman, then Christ would be no different from any other sinner. Christ had to come. God just made use of the womb of Mary. It was the Holy Spirit that conceived and then Christ came through a virgin birth. Now you begin to understand. When you understand federal headship, then you begin to understand Christ cannot be a sinner. Christ must be a perfect man, living the perfect life, so that he, when I come under him as my head, I can be now having a perfect head and I in him have salvation. So you understand covenant theology, the importance of understanding federal headship will now help you to understand very clearly your salvation, why Christ must come as human being in order to be a perfect man. Why must Christ fulfill the law? You notice Christ made sure he, he was baptized. Christ made sure that he, was, he fulfilled every part of the Sabbath and all the, everything. He said, for now, it is important that I fulfill all righteousness. Why? Because he needs to be the perfect man then he can be the perfect federal head for those that choose to be under him and receive salvation. You understand your salvation clearly now, my friends? That is what federal headship is about. So covenant theology, when you think of covenant theology, you have to understand the word covenant, federal, and you have to then understand your salvation in that aspect. Okay? So um, the next thing I want you to do is tear out your last page, page 7. 
Okay, because uh, I'll be referring to this and explaining point by point. So just rip it out. You can go back and uh, stick it back, stapler it back. Okay, this is a more detailed diagram with the Bible verses of um, the various aspects that we need to try and understand now in covenant theology. Okay, so, so far we have said this, right? Covenant theology, remember, covenant of works, covenant of grace. Man fell, God kicked in, Genesis 3.16, to promise salvation. Okay? Oh, actually before that, I have to give you some history. Some history. Having said this now, it's now then to explain to you page 3, the history. History of covenant theology. How do we end up with covenant theology? Having understood the, the definition, this definition is not something that never existed. Okay? So look at the history. Though unsystematized, the early church fathers in 300s and 400s AD had a theology of covenant. How do we know that? Because Augustine of Hippo, one of the very well-known church fathers, he already started to outline the covenant of works and the covenant of grace in his writings. So when men start to find the writings of the early church fathers, they already saw Christians back then writing about these two covenants, covenants of work, covenants of grace, as they understand God's word. So this is not something that men make up. The early church fathers have always saw and understood the covenant of works, covenant of grace, covenant of works. God promised Adam, if you, if you fulfill, um, if you obey me completely, you have eternal life. Adam did not. And then they saw very clearly in the scriptures, when man fell, God promised in Genesis 3, 15, that he will provide a savior and covenant of grace kicked in. So, we already see that in the early writings. Then you ask, how come before that no one wrote about it? Before that, the church fathers already always saw it. The reason why Augustine had to start to write it was because of um, a man called Pelagius. Pelagianism, many of you may know of it. This man started to say that, um, believe that man is not totally depraved. He said after man's fall, man had still some good in him. And he did not believe that man became um, so sinful that he would not choose God. And that the covenant of grace needed to kick in. So as a result of that, the church fathers started to write and systematize some of these thoughts to make sure that people understood what the Bible teaches in order that they would know that what Pelagian, Pelagius was teaching was wrong. Okay, So, so that is the reason why... Um, the church fathers started to write about these things. But then look at this um, further on. Then after that, the Puritans, the Puritans always said this statement, in Adam's fall, sinned we all. So the Puritans already started to be very clear about the federal headship concept. Adam's fall, we all became sinners. You know, these things are so common to us. We, we just like, oh, we always knew that. But back then, these are things that people were systematizing. They were beginning to understand from God's Word and writing it very clearly. And it was at the Reformation, the next paragraph, John Calvin, the shining star of Reformation, it was at that time that 
he was one of the very first to integrate covenant concept. What is this covenant concept? Covenant of works, covenant of grace. He integrated these concepts and made it very clear in his writings, especially in the writings called the Institutes, Kelvin Institutes. Okay, so here he started to write about the unity of the covenant, the different administration of the covenant, progressive revelation of the covenant, and so on. Okay, what are all these things? Here is where we want to start getting into it. By the time of the Reformation, Martin Luther, um, John Calvin and all, they started to crystallize what we are going to go through in detail in this last sheet. They began to crystallize a lot of these things. And then from there on, by the time we end this, when we have a clear picture of the various components, this would be covenant theology encapsulated in a diagram. Okay? So, I hope that at the end of it, in fact, I'll just tell you now, all of you must be able to draw this diagram. Okay? I don't know how much of a hint some more I can give. Okay, if you still don't get it, I can't help you. <laughs> Alright? So, a few very important things we, we must understand here. Look at your diagram. Here we will go into the verses because it's no use giving you a diagram and say, oh, okay, but who says so? Okay, this, this is taken, um, put together with the verses to help you understand the various components. So where is the covenant of works? Did it occur? Turn with me to Genesis um, chapter 2, verse 17. By the way, you will notice on your diagram, there are numbers, right? Next to Adam, there's one A. Next to Christ, there's one B. Um, on top of this rainbow-looking thing, there is number two. All those numbers are tied to your notes. Okay, tied to page three of your notes. Okay, so we'll go through it slowly, one by one. I've already covered. Okay, let me be systematic and let's run through. Okay, number one. Okay, let's run through this diagram in detail now. Point number one. Look at your diagram, which you just ripped up on page seven. Look at the bottom, there's Adam and Christ, right? So the federal head of men, we read in Romans, 15, uh, Romans 5, Christ's federal headship, we also wrote, read in Romans chapter 5. So point number one on page 3. Point number one. Covenant theology is also known as federal theology. So Adam is the sinner's federal head. Christ, the last Adam, is the believer's federal head. In fact, would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15? Look at verse 45 and 46 and 47. And so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul, and the last man was made a quickening spirit. How, how be it that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. And verse 47, The first man of the earth, earthly, the second man is the Lord from heaven. So here the Bible makes it very clear to us. Adam is the first man. First, Adam is the first Adam. Well, Adam is the first Adam. And Christ is the second and the last Adam. Okay, so why was God wanting to compare Adam and Christ? Is to make sure we understand that we were born under the first Adam, sinners. But we have a choice to move our citizenship, our headship, under the second Adam, Christ. That is the reason why God made sure that he stated that Christ 
is the second Adam and he's the last Adam. Okay? So that's number one, point number one. Okay, actually these six points that I put here are the key six elements that you should understand about covenant theology. There are many other things which we'll cover, but I'll cover those when we start to compare dispensationalism and covenant theology. All right? But for now, the key elements. So now, covenant of works. It is made very clear. We read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. Let's turn there. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. How did this covenant of works come about? Is it true? Did people make it up? Genesis 2, 16 and 17. God says, And the Lord God commanded the man, Adam, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in that day thou shalt eatest, that thou eatest, thou, therefore thou shalt surely die. So this is the covenant of works. God made a covenant with Adam. Adam, if you obey me, the rest of your life in eternity, you will have eternal life and you will not sin. You will not sin. You will be sealed. You will not sin. Just like the angels. Do you know that the angels that chose, that chose to follow Satan, they fell. But those that chose, they passed the test. They chose to stay with God. They never sinned. They will not sin. They will not fall. Ever. This is the same for you and I. When we get to glory, when we get to heaven, we will not ever sin again. If Adam obeyed, that would be all our state. We, will, we cannot be tempted, neither will we fall into sin. Okay? So God promised such a life to Adam. But Adam failed. That covenant that God made. Immediately when that covenant um, was, Adam failed that covenant. Look at that, 2a. The promise was, God will seal Adam with eternal life and perfect obedience. And the condition was, Adam have absolute obedience. And the penalty, if Adam failed, death. Physical, spiritual, eternal. The covenant of grace, the next point. Okay, um, actually, point number D, presently what I'm trying to say that if you reject Christ, you, you basically need to fulfill the covenant of works, but you can never. But if you receive Christ as your Savior, the covenant of works is no longer upon you. You are under the covenant of grace. So the moment man fell, at that very moment, immediately God had to kick in a second covenant. That's why we have two covenants. The moment Adam fell, fell immediately God now kicked in John uh, Genesis what? Remember, you must remember this. Genesis 3.15 Immediately when, when man fell, he kicked in a new covenant. And that is called the covenant of grace. Understand that? So that's why we end up with these two covenants. So this second covenant, point number three. Look at your diagram. Right? So you have that that curved thing there again, Genesis 3.15, covenant of grace. What happens in this covenant? God is the party that moves. God approached man first. All right? So the parties, God is the one who moves. It is a legal agreement. It is a legal agreement. Remember um, that when he made the covenant with, with Moses, with Abraham, everybody, he said that basically as long as he lives, the covenant will stay enforced. When will God die? God never dies. And God said, as long as I live, this covenant will be enforced. 
Okay, so it's a legal covenant, legal binding covenant that will never be broken. Um, some of this I want to cover later to, for the sake of time. We move to the next, the promise. Alright, the promise, B. Blessings for obedience, cursings for disobedience. You have your verses there. And justification, God promised justification. God promised the seal of the Holy Spirit. God promised final glorification. And the promises are familial. Okay, so now I want to go through some of this. You and I are under the covenant of grace. We are covenantalists. You must understand what is involved in the covenant that God makes with you as a believer. First of all, you must understand it's blessings for obedience and cursings for disobedience. God, covenant theology is God dealing with men with a covenant relationship. So remember and understand that. Covenant theology is all about God dealing with men through covenant. And what does he promise in this covenant? One of the things that is often misunderstood about covenant theology, covenant theology okay, is that people say that um, we believe in salvation by works. We believe in salvation by works. Because they say that we teach blessings for obedience, cursings for disobedience. Okay? Now here is where you must understand your salvation very clearly. Salvation is by faith. Very clearly. Salvation is by faith. In fact, I tried to explain this um, in point C. Look at point C. Okay. Point C3. Note, condition of salvation is faith alone. We know that very clearly in Ephesians 2.8. Can we recite Ephesians 2.8? For you are saved by grace through faith. It is not of works. Huh? Okay, so remember salvation is by grace. Then what about these blessings and cursing? What people often mix up in salvation is this. They think that after they are saved, after they are saved, they think that to maintain their salvation, they need to make sure that they are always obeying God's commandments. Now, let me ask you, after you are saved, do you, does it mean you don't need to obey God's commandments anymore? You do not need to do good works? How are our works involved in a believer's life? When that is not clear in your mind, you will always be very confused about your salvation and covenant theology actually makes it very clear for you. When God promised in Genesis what, 3.15 that there will be a saviour, God is saying that when you transfer your citizenship under this new saviour, you are saved permanently. We are going to study tulip, eh? tulip in the third session, so make sure that you come. You are permanently saved, but after you are saved, you are expected to obey God's commandment and do good works for what purpose? Not to maintain your salvation, but to please God. But to make sure that men, that you glorify God by your life. So you must be very clear. In fact, I think the best verse, that best passage in the Bible that explains this very clearly, the cursings and the blessings is purely 
after you are saved, you disobey God, God will have to chastise you. You obey God, God will bless you. But you will never lose your salvation because you've already transferred your headship there permanently. Alright, turn with me to Titus chapter 3. I hope tonight you, are, you will be very clear about your salvation and works. Titus chapter 3 verses 5 to 18. Sounds like Galatians, uh, Ephesians 2, 8, right? Not of works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of the eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. So, so do you see, it's very clear in the Bible. The reason for you, look at verse 8. It said, this is a faithful saying. Look at in the middle. They which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These are good and profitable to men. Your works, your obedience, God will bless. But it has nothing to do with your salvation. Once you're saved, once you have chosen Christ as your federal head, Paul makes it very clear. You are made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You are already an heir. You are part of the family. You have an heirloom. You have something to inherit already. It's promised. It's promised. But as a saved believer, you must remember that how you live your life will affect God's glory. You will not lose your salvation, but God will have to chastise you. That is where the cursings for disobedience come in. I hope you understand this clear enough tonight. Anyone ha- at this point don't understand this, please ask. Because this is a very, another very important point of covenant theology that you have to understand. When God promises you, covenant, the word covenant is a promise. When God promises you salvation, it is sure. God's promised that if you transfer your headship to this federal head, Christ, you are an heir. You will not lose that salvation. But he explains here, after you are saved, please live a godly life. You want to live a godly life to please God. You want to live a godly life, a sanctified life, to make sure that you do not put God's name to shame. It has nothing to do with your salvation anymore. Okay? So now, that, that is the point I want to make. So blessings for cursing, uh, 3B1 and 2. Blessings for cursings, uh, blessings for obedience, cursings for disobedience. And then we read the word justification just now as well. Justification is a very legal term. In covenant theology, not just in covenant theology, this word justification is basically a legal term. In fact, as you study the Bible, all the terms involved in your salvation, propitiation, justification, redemption, all these are legal terms. Remember in the beginning we say the covenant is a legal agreement between God and you. And God binds himself to it and God used precise legal terms to make sure that you know he will never break that. He can't break that. What is justification? Justification means it's as good as, for example, you go to court, you committed um, an offense, you paid, you paid for the offense. 
And then the judge slams the hammer and he, and he stamps, justified, free to go. You can walk out of that courtroom and no one can ever stop you. And later on, no policeman, no law can ever come back to you and say, oh, you committed that offence when you have paid for it. And we know we did not pay for it. Christ paid for it perfectly and we received his righteousness. So when God says justify, it means that you're free to go and God will never judge you. God will never judge you for your sin to send you to hell anymore. Okay, so understand legal terms in the covenant. And next, the seal of the Holy Spirit is promised. Okay, it's promised. Turn with me to Ephesians 1.3. Okay, there is that promise that God made. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And look at verse 13, Ephesians 1.13. In whom ye have trusted after that ye have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after you believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And he used another term in verse 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Another thing you must understand clearly in covenant theology is all believers are sealed, are sealed, given the Holy Spirit, sealed by the Holy Spirit. Okay, sealed with the Holy Spirit, rather. Now, here is where I'll jump a bit ahead. The dispensationalists do not believe that believers in the Old Testament have the Holy Spirit. Right? By and large, that is what it teaches. But covenant theologians are very clear in our minds. The moment you believe in God, whether you are the Old Testament saint or New Testament saint, God gives the Holy Spirit and seals the person with the Holy Spirit. In fact, this is where I want you to look at your page 7, the page you ripped up. The Old and New Testament saints. You will notice how I've made sure this diagram is drawn. Covenant of Grace. Many of us have the misconception that covenant of grace is only New Testament. Okay, let that be clear in your mind today. Covenant theology, covenant of grace is stretching across, that's why I do, drew that diagram, across Old and New Testament. Covenant of grace kicked in immediately after man fell. Then Genesis 3.15. Alright, so... The confusion is this. Many of us think Old Testament, New Testament. Then we read in the Bible, Old Covenant, New Covenant, and we get all mixed up. There's how many covenants in the Bible? In covenant theology? How many covenants? Two. What are they? Covenant of works and covenant of grace. Okay? Covenant of works ended the moment man fell. Covenant of grace started immediately after man fell. What is the record of man's fall, Old or New Testament? Started in the Old Testament. 
When covenant, when God gave Genesis 3.15, Old Testament saints and New Testament saints are all living under the covenant of grace. That is a very important aspect you've got to understand about covenant theology. Did the Old, pe- old Testament people get saved through the sacrifices, through works? No. They all got saved by grace. Alright? Okay, this is where we want to talk about this in a little bit more detail now. Are Old Testament saints saved by works or grace? In the book of Hebrews, it's very clear. God repeatedly said that Abraham, Abraham is New or Old Testament? Okay, very good, you're listening. Abraham, definitely Old Testament. Was Abraham saved by faith or was Abraham saved by works? Very clear. Turn to Hebrews. In fact, um, let's look at Galatians first. Galatians 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. Even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith the same are the children of Abraham. Okay, so be very clear. Verse 9. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Be very clear. Abraham was not saved by works. Abraham was not saved by sacrifices. God makes it very clear. He explains the Old Testament to you and I. Abraham was saved because he believed that God's covenant with him, tied to Genesis 3.15, will be fulfilled. So now you have to be very clear in your mind, the covenants coming together. Okay? So I want to show you these covenants coming together. They're all the same covenant. Remember from the beginning I said covenant theology, the distinctive of covenant theology is all the covenants are tied to the same covenant in Genesis 3.15. It's all the same covenant. Okay, God administered it differently. That's all. All the same covenant. So, where was that covenant with, with Abraham given? Genesis 17.7. Let me read to you Genesis 17.7. In fact, I'm explaining to you. Uh, um, turn to page 4. Page 4, D2. The qualities. The, covenant, the quality of the covenant is the one and the same covenant. Genesis 17.7. You have your reference there? Let me read to you. God told Abraham, And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee, and in their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. What is God saying? God told Abraham very, very clearly, Abraham, I'm making a covenant with you, and this covenant involves me making a promise that in you, through you, there's going to be a very unique seed, which is Jesus Christ, that will come. And through him, all the nations will be blessed. Everyone can receive salvation through you, Abraham. Because from Abraham, we have Isaac, we have Jacob, we have Israel, we have the Savior. So God said, this is my promise. Okay, This is my promise. Is it the same promise in the New Testament? Then with me to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. Is it the same covenant? 
Hebrews 8.10 For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And then verse 13, In that he saith a new covenant he hath made, the first old, now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. God is not saying that the covenant he made with Moses is throwing away. In fact, this whole chapter, chapter 8, is God reiterating to the people again and again. He say, listen, Jews, listen, Gentiles. This covenant that I made with Abraham, I will keep forever. But now, in the New Testament, I am going to administer it differently. The old is going to decay, is going to change. There is going to be change. Why was this addressed? Because the Jews kept wanting to go back to all the sacrifices. And Paul had to tell them, I know you're thinking of the Abrahamic covenant and all the sacrifices, but Paul kept reminding them, God says, it's the same covenant. Don't worry, God is not throwing away the covenant. You don't have to... They think that if I stop doing all the sacrifices... Oh, the covenant is gone. He said, no, don't worry. God is keeping this covenant, but how he administers it is the old way is going to change. Ah, now it goes to this question now. Old Testament and New Testament. Whenever we hear Old Testament and New Testament, we begin to think, okay, old means, um, some of us link it to here. Please, Old Testament is not covenant of works. Okay, be clear now. I hope it's clear once and for all. Old Testament is still covenant of grace. Okay, be clear in your mind. So when you say Old Testament, it's not this covenant of works. Old Testament started here. Okay, covenant of grace. Then what is this Old Testament and New Testament? And as you read Hebrews, God will keep saying, the New Testament is a... Turn with me to Hebrews. I hope with this, it becomes clear in your mind. What is this Old and New? Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. But now has he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is a mediator of a better covenant, which, is, which was established upon their promises. What is this better covenant? So when we read, we begin to see new covenant. We hear the word better covenant. We, we read the old will vanish away. We begin to think that it's a different covenant. No, it is not that at all. In fact, you read the Bible, it says, oh, it doesn't say here, but when you read, it says, New Testament. All right? Christ says, this is um, my, the New Testament in my blood. All right? What is this word new? There are many words to describe new in the Greek, but Christ chose the word kaine. Kaine is not new as in different altogether. Okay? Like, uh, I'm eating an apple, I want a new fruit, I eat orange. Totally different. No, this word new is not different. This word new is different in quality, in freshness. So I'm eating an apple, it's like, this apple tastes a bit soft and soggy. I want a new apple that is crunchy and sweet. It is a new apple. It's a new, the same. So New Testament is not a new covenant. New Testament is still, still the same covenant, but now with a fresh quality. What does it mean? Look at point number five. Okay. Oh, sorry, point number four. So the old 
covenant here. Old Testament, all right? Yes, it's called the Old Covenant. It's the same covenant. It's just it's old. Old in what sense? The difference between the old and the new is point four and five on page four. It is the administration that is different. Okay? So, be very clear in your mind when you say Old Testament, New Testament, it is same covenant, but how God administered the covenant is different. How did He administer the Old Covenant? Same covenant, eh? Abrahamic covenant. Okay, covenant of grace. Alright? So the covenant of grace, okay, look here. The covenant of grace is administered differently in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but they are still the covenant of what? Grace. Okay, remember. How is it administered in the Old Covenant? Look at 4a. By ceremonial rites. So, in the Old Testament, it is clear. Although it's covenant of grace, but they had sacrifices, offerings, there was circumcision, burnt offerings, and all sorts of offerings. B, there were festivals they were supposed to keep. There were feasts they were supposed to keep, such as the Passover feast. And then there are ah, the Old Testament. The way God deal with men in the Old Testament was also different. It was by types. For example, the lamb, C1, eh? the lamb of God, types. The bronze serpent, the shoe bread, the manna. So you see there are a lot of types, very complex in there. And then how God spoke with men was God spoke through his own voice, dreams, visions. So in the Old Testament, same covenant of grace, but this is how God dealt with men in the Old Testament. Okay, same covenant, but this is how he dealt with them. Now the question is, in the New Testament, how does God administer it? Why is it called new? Why is it called fresh? Why is it called better? Because all this very complicated way of ceremonies, and you know, it is a very bloody Old Testament. Very bloody. People are seeing blood all the time. Kill animals, circumcision, kill more animals, sacrifices, burnt offerings. You walk into the temple, you smell a lot of blood. In fact, by the time when Solomon dedicated the temple, he, he, he killed thousands of, of uh, um, ox, goats and all that to sacrifice. I cannot imagine how, how far, kilometers away people would smell the blood. It was a very bloody and very complex system. Very complex system. But when they were doing all this, were they putting their faith in all this, in the animals? No. What was the lamb signifying when they killed the lamb? The lamb was supposed to be representing Christ, the lamb of God. That's why John the Baptist, when the baptizer, when he saw Christ walking, he said, Behold, the lamb of God. Christ was going to be our lamb. Right? So all these types. So when these people were making these sacrifices, please don't think that they are thinking, Oh, if I kill this lamb, this lamb is going to die for me. Uh, when I burn this, when I make this sacrifice, all these things are going to cleanse my sin. No, these people are very clear in their mind. They knew when they make the sacrifices, they knew that all these things were shadow and types pointing to Christ. Genesis 3.15. They understood Genesis 3.15. They knew that God promised a lamb that will come and take their place and die for their sins and will shed the blood on their behalf. So they always knew. 
So they never put their faith in that. That's why Abraham did not put his faith in those things. Abraham put the faith in that one day God is going to send his son, the Lamb of God, he's going to die for me and all that I'm doing now, I'm putting my faith in the coming Christ. Okay? Understand that? That's why you look at the diagram I drew at the bottom. Not very nice, but you see a man with the eyes, rays coming off the eyes. Page 7. The bottom. Okay, the Old Testament saints, I wrote that Old Testament saints looked forward to Christ. Get a picture? John 5, John 8, 5 and 6. Turn there, John 8. John 8, 56, sorry. John 8, 56, let me read to you. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Did Abraham live until Christ turned up? No. How did Abraham see Christ's day? When Abraham died long before Christ came. What he's saying is, Abraham always put his faith, by the eyes of faith, he already saw that Christ would come and die. And all the sacrifices pointed to him putting his faith in Jesus Christ. So Abraham put his faith in Jesus Christ as well. He saw the day of Jesus Christ. You know, for Abraham to leave his land, Abraham did not live in a... In a kampong, you know, a, a small dingy town. Abraham was a rich man, rich man's son. He lived in a metropolitan city. When God called him, he already saw afar off. He saw God and a better promise that God would give him, a better land. So when Abraham left, he left riches. But he saw by faith what Christ would bring in terms of spiritual riches in his life. Right? So, Abraham already saw. So, Old Testament saved, saints saved by what? Saved by faith. That's why I look at your diagram on page 7. I wrote a cross on top of Christ, that cross. Huh? Same covenant in Old and New Testament. But you can look at that. Galatians 3.29 refers to the same covenant. And salvation by grace through faith. Ephesians and Galatians. In fact, Galatians refer back again to the same covenant. Okay, so with that, now we say, why is it better? Why, why does the writer of Hebrews, which we believe is Paul, why did he say a better covenant? Why did he say new? The reason is this, a better covenant, because the old covenant was very complex. But same, they all put faith in Christ, very bloody, very complicated, very difficult. But after Christ came, Christ himself simplified the entire administration. Okay, now you look at your page. Page 7. Page 7. In the Old Testament, bracket 4, if you want to refer, there was Passover, bloody, there were a lot of rites, there's circumcision. In the New Testament, the Lord replaced Passover with the Lord's Supper. The Lord replaced circumcision with baptism, which includes infant baptism. Okay, Colossians chapter 2. So these things were now a much simpler administration, a better administration. In fact, I gave um, a detailed write-up. Look at point page 4, 5D. 
Okay, so now we are on this word. Why is it called better and new covenant? Eh? 5D. Look at the notes. 5D1. The new and old covenants described in Hebrews 8.13 is the same covenant of grace, but administered differently. I spent the last few minutes speaking about that. The word new testament, the Greek word for new, is not new as in different, but new in a sense of quality. How is it different? Um, 5D3. In the New Testament, the administration of the covenant of grace is better because, number one, in Hebrews 8, it is a better priesthood. It is a better priesthood. That's why the writers say better. Why better priesthood? Christ is now, who is our great high priest? Is it Aaron? No, Christ. You know, back then they have to worry, you know. Every year they worry, we must have a high priest. Then, high priests, you think they live forever, they die. They grow old and they die. And then the people will worry, oh no, how? If they die, no high priest. How, how are we going to get our sins forgiven? It was, not, it was not easy. But here, Christ said, I am now the great high priest. Will Christ die? Christ will never die. Eternal. We don't have to worry. So it's a far better priesthood. Christ's priesthood, the Melchizedek priesthood you read in chapter 7, is a far better. In fact, you look at all the four points that is. Paul developing from chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, he was constantly developing and explaining why this new covenant is better. But it's the same covenant. Okay? Number two, because it's no longer shadows and types in tabernacles, in Hebrews 8. Back then, they have to build the tabernacle. You know, every time they move, they have to take down the whole tabernacle. I think every time you set up PA system, you bring everything to the amphitheater, then you set up to know that half an hour, one hour later, you have to take out everything again. And they have to take it down precisely how God determined. And they have to put it out again precisely how God determined. And then they have the holies of holies. So when they do all these things, it's very, very laborious. It's very complicated. But they must build the tabernacle. And then they have the temple, of course. So Christ said, no longer do you need to have this tabernacle pitched by men. I am... Now, residing in the heavens. I am your great high priest residing in heaven. You do not need all these tabernacles anymore. So the, the Jews need to understand the temple and all that. You don't have to do all those things there anymore. So that's the second one. Why is it better? Point number three. Because direct access to God through Christ. The new covenant, although it's covenant of grace, is better because now they don't need to depend on the high priest to go into the Holy of Holies. You know how it, you know how it happens, right? Every time the high priest go in, they have to tie, they have to put bells on the bottom of his, of his uh, garments, and then they have to tie a string to him. And he, then he go into the Holies of Holies. And then they wait. They wait. Because they don't know. So they'll hear him doing things in there. As he walks, there'll be a clanging, clanging, the, all the bells and all that. They know, okay, good, he's still alive. You know, but if the high priest has sinned in his life, he did not get right with God, and he go into the holies of holies, he will die in there. Then what must they do? Hey, no more sound, you know, after half an hour, I think he's dead. <laughs> they have to pull him out, because they cannot go in. Only the high priest can go in. Then they have to pull him out already. Okay, dead body, pull him out. That is the kind of things they were going through. Although covenant of grace, all these things that they do were putting their faith in what is coming, right? These things were not going to save them. And then Christ said, now no more. When Christ died, what happened at the temple? The curtain rent apart. How did the curtain rent apart? 
Is it from bottom to top? Or from top to bottom? You ever see something tear from top to bottom? <laughs> it's usually human tear. It's bottom up, right? God show, I tear. I break apart the holies of holies now. All of us can go into the holies of holies and approach God directly in this new covenant. It's also covenant of grace. But you see, all this administration, when Christ came, they changed. Okay, instead of killing and killing and killing thousands of animals, every day very smelly, and then the priests walk every day, they're just killing animals, they have blood everywhere. You know, mechanics, they're always having oil everywhere, go back and bathe. Priests, is every day blood everywhere. You know, so all these things say no more. Direct access to God. Point number four, because no need for repeated bloody sacrifices. Hebrews 10. So you see, when we say new and better, don't think of it as this is a different one. It's not different. It's the same, but a better covenant. You understand? Because when you don't understand this point, dispensationalists will always tell you that the covenant, um, that the Bible says new covenant, better covenant, is a different covenant. Why do you insist? As covenant theologians, why do you insist that it's all the same covenant? Why do you insist it's covenant of grace? They will tell you that. But I hope now you understand. In Hebrews, when you read 7, 8, 9, and 10, Paul kept explaining it's the same covenant, but now a much better way of administrating. That is what it is meant by new. Understand? So it's the Old Testament, Old Covenant. It means complex. New Testament, New Covenant, simple, but same covenant. Okay, so when we go, go into differences, you will see this becoming more apparently important uh, for you. Okay, so let us see what else do we need to make sure that we cover. Okay, so this ends, the last part, point number six. Point number six. Oh, before that, can you fill point, uh, page four, the table, please? Feast of Passover lamb replaced by what? Replaced by Holy Communion, okay? In the New Testament, circumcision replaced by water baptism, okay? Types, visions, theophany, and all that, how, are we, how do we know Christ? How do we know God in the New Testament? It is by, look at 5C2, one and 5C1 and 2. Jesus Christ, through Christ, who spoke to us in the Bible, and number two, the Bible itself. Okay, these are the new administration of the new covenant. Okay, so if I ask you, what is the new administration? How is the new administration different from the old? This is the table. All right, the different administration have changed. Okay, so the last point, page four. Number six. Here is one of the distinctives of covenant theology that you must understand. Covenant theology emphasizes, by now I think you, you get it, the unity of scriptures. Old and New Testament is the same covenant. God is talking all the while about the same covenant. Alright? So, 6a. Salvation is by grace through faith for both Old and New Testaments. That means that the Old Testament and the New Testament have the Holy Spirit as well. Okay, I don't have time to explain that, but uh, in the notes I have indicated, if you want to understand more of that, uh, um, turn to page 3, 3B, 
3b4. 3b4. Okay, 3b4. I've given you all the verses about the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the Word of God makes it very clear that the Old Testament people had the Holy Spirit. Okay, be clear about that. Um, let me just give you an example because I know some of you really struggle with this. Do the New Testament did the Old Testament believers really have the Holy Spirit? Remember when Christ just one example and then we will move on. Turn with me. Um, okay, there's three. Turn to John chapter three. John chapter three. Christ himself made it clear that the Old Testament people had the Holy Spirit. John chapter 3. Here is the account where Nicodemus was talking with Christ. And then Christ was telling him how to be saved, right? John 3, 3. Jesus, Jesus answered and said unto Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except that the man be born again, of, born again, and cannot, he cannot see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? How can he, can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born, be born? And Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Okay, and after that, he scolded Nicodemus in verse 10. Art thou... A master of Israel and knowest not these things? What is Christ saying here? Christ, you know when Nicodemus say, How can I be born again? Christ say, Don't you know? He say, verse 10, Art thou a master of Israel? Aren't you a master of Israel? Nicodemus was an Old Testament plea. Here, Christ was especially referring to the Pentecost that will be coming. Okay, so the Pentecost was going to come. He refers to two groups of people. Jesus says, He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water, but this is spake of the Spirit, which they that believe on should receive. So he's saying, the Holy Ghost, anyone who believes in Christ, must receive the, will receive the Holy Ghost. So that's one thing he's saying. He said, but this is spake of the Spirit, which they that believe should receive. So he already said, anyone who believes in Christ should receive the Holy Spirit. So this group of people. So he said, at Pentecost, those that will believe, and we know thousands believe, they will receive the Holy Ghost. Okay, so number one. Number two, he says, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Ah, this is an important theological understanding that you must have. Jesus is saying that you have to understand, when Jesus spoke of Pentecost, it was a time where the church was going to be built. The, the believers were all going to go out to plant churches. When you read the theology of the Holy Spirit from Old Testament to New Testament, you have to understand two parts about Holy Spirit. One is called the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The other is called the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Indwelling of the Holy Spirit means all believers have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The whole, if you, as long as you are a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. Christ himself said this. Okay? As long as you are a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. That's called the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. Infilling of the Holy Spirit, as you read from Old Testament to New Testament, is called, 
He said, walk in the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. This filling is different from indwelling. Filling is the empowerment that the Holy Spirit gives you in order to do a certain task. For example, I am saved. I believe in Jesus Christ. I have the indwelling. Every Sunday, or even tonight when I preach, I have to ask for the infilling of the Spirit. The infilling of the Spirit is the empowering work where the Holy Spirit comes and strengthens you for a certain task. doesn't mean you don't have it. Okay, so when Paul said, be filled with the Holy Spirit, he's saying, oh, you don't have the Holy Spirit. No, Paul said, you have. But you, when you need to walk the Christian life, when you're facing temptations, you need to ask God, God, fill me. Fill me. Strengthen me by the Holy Spirit. When you read the Old Testament, and some of the verses I give you there, there were the, come, the word of God uses, the Spirit came upon the people. Came upon so-and-so. Came upon. That word came upon means the Holy Spirit came to strengthen them. Because we cannot think uh, in this word's term, come and go, dwell. You think God dwells in you? Even this God dwells in you? How can Holy Spirit, which is omnipotent, which is omnipresent, how does it dwell in you? Okay, so all these are anthropomorphic terms which help you understand a concept. So when God said the Holy Spirit come, it doesn't mean that He was never there and He's now coming to you. It simply means He is coming in the sense of strengthening a special work. So when they needed to build the temple, God said the Holy Spirit came upon them. These people were believers. Came upon them means He gave them extra wisdom to do God's work. So at Pentecost, when He said the Holy Spirit would come because Christ was not yet glorified. Because Christ is saying, I have not gone to the cross yet. I have not gone to die on the cross yet. After I have the Holy Spirit is going to come in a special way with a special task at Pentecost onwards. Pentecost was a time when the church began to build. The, the believers, all the while, the Israelites, the people looked to them for salvation. From outside, they looked in. But at Pentecost onwards, the Israelites were going to go outwards to build churches, right? They were going to go to different lands, scattered, and they were supposed to plant churches. God knew that they are going to be commissioned for a new task now, and with that new task, they are going to need a special empowering of the Holy Spirit to do this new task. So when God says, the Holy Spirit is going to come on Pentecost, it does not mean that Peter um, and all the disciples that were there, they never had the Holy Spirit. So the way to understand this is to understand theology. Number one, do we all agree that Peter uh, and the disciples, they were saved, Christians? We believe, right? Do we believe that they have the Holy Spirit? They have, because when Christ said, when Christ already said, you, you by the Spirit know. So they have the Holy Spirit. So when they were at Pentecost, was the Holy Spirit coming new to them? No, the Holy Spirit was going to come in a special way with a special task to enable the Christians now to go out and do church planting, which they have never done before. They now need a special grace. The Holy Spirit was going to come with a new purpose. Not that he was not there. I give you an example which I always use. I send someone to um, to Thailand to work, and I call. And he was always staying in Thai Thailand office. Then I call up the Thailand managers. I say, um, I will send James. Okay, for example, his name is James. I will send James to do this new project with you. James was always there. James is there, but I'm, I'm now sending James with a new mission, with a new project to do for Thailand. 
So when God said, I sent, it does not mean He was never there. Okay, He was always there. But now He is coming, coming in the sense that He's going to now do a new work with a new purpose. And Christ here referring, He haven't gone to the cross, means the church planting work of Pentecost will not start yet. Pentecost will only start after Christ has gone to the cross. And Pentecost onwards was going to be church planting, church growth. And Christ said, after I have gone to the cross, Pentecost will happen and the Holy Spirit will now have a new mission that is to enable you believers to go out and plant churches. And endure the temptations and the persecutions that they will face. Okay? So this is a very long answer. Um, but I think next year maybe we can do a series on the Holy Spirit. Okay, so, so we have to understand the Holy Spirit was always there when God said He has not come, has not given, He's not given for that purpose of church planting. Because you have to understand it from an overall perspective. Okay? And in this perspective, otherwise this will contradict what John what Christ just told Nicodemus. Nicodemus, don't you know? That for a person to be saved, he must have the Holy Spirit. He just called it Nicodemus, right? We read, he just called it Nicodemus. So Christ himself is saying the Old Testament people and anyone who believes must have the Holy Spirit. And, and to say that then, here Christ is saying that, oh, the Holy Spirit haven't come, then Christ will be contradicting himself. Okay? I don't know how many people really understand that. I know some are nodding. Uh, but, CG, uh, that's a very good question. But it's difficult to answer, answer in total detail referring to all the verses. But we can do that. At the, at the Holy Spirit session. But that's a good question. Okay, so we close with the last part. The last part. Page, uh, page 6. Sorry. Page, uh, page 4. Point number 6. What is covenant theology? Covenant theology, I like this statement. 6C. Uh, covenant theology is a continuous, unified system it uses a needle with a scarlet thread to tie up the whole Bible. Okay? So remember, covenant theology, as you will see next week, as opposed to dispensational theology, dispensational theology is discrete parts. They interpret the scripture discreetly. Um, they cut up the Bible. We'll see that next week. Covenant theology shows the whole covenant from Old to New Testament as covenant of grace and everything is linked, but administered differently between the Old and the New Testament. Understand? So if, again you ask, what is covenant theology? You don't have to draw the very complicated one, but at least be able to draw the simplified one. Very simple. What is covenant theology? There's a covenant of works before the fall, there's a covenant of works after the fall. The covenant of works after the fall is covenant of grace. The Old and New Testament, all saints, old and new, live under the covenant of grace. Only Adam lived under the covenant of works. Okay, and we are all saved by grace through faith. Saved by faith, placing our faith in God's grace. Okay, and federal headship. These few concepts encapsulated on this diagram which we like to draw to help you understand covenant theology. Okay? Let me see if I forgot to cover any quiz questions. So next week, when we come back, go through these notes, alright? It shouldn't be very difficult, but next week we come back, we are going to have a quiz. Uh, there will be 10 questions. 
Very simple, true and false question, fill in the blanks. Okay, um, and then, uh, yeah, true and false, fill in the blank, and and some artistry required. <laughs> okay, all right, so with that, I hope you have some basic understanding of covenant theology. I can't cover the comparisons of covenant theology and dispensational theology until I've given you understanding of both and then we cover the differences. But even covering the differences is like trying to compare apples and oranges. Okay, But there are some key ones which you should understand. So please keep coming because after all this, I hope now you understand your faith, how you are saved more clearly by covenant. Okay, Understand that clearly. Then we understand dispensation. Then after that, we can understand the BP faith very clearly because it is a bit of mix of both. I'm kind of giving the hint now. Okay? And then we want to understand why. Okay? So, um, let's close in prayer.